Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. No doubt if you look around for just a moment, not looking around to see who's here and who's dressed how and what, but it is evident that we need a harvest of lost souls. Not merely for the sake of filling the vacancies that's in this sanctuary, while I would love to see them filled, that's not necessarily the only reason why we need a harvest of souls. You see, we need a harvest of souls as a result of our compassion for the lost. The world's a mess. Folks are in bondage to the world and to sin. So this morning I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I'm going to ask you today to involve yourself, regardless of your age, regardless of your spiritual background, in the means of evangelizing our community and our world in a method that has been proven, a process that everyone can get involved in, regardless of your capabilities, your age, your physical strength. In Jesus' plan for a harvest, we can truly be effective. I want to preach for a little while this morning without compassion, no harvest. Without compassion, no harvest. I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 9. We'll read verses 35 through 38 in your hearing. Then we'll pray and get right into the word of the Lord. Without compassion, there will not be a harvest of souls. The Bible says in Matthew, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, this is the truth, this is the verse I want you to keep in your forethoughts as we minister for a little while this morning. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, again this morning, what a privilege. We count it today to be assembled together here in your presence. We're thankful for each one that has come out this morning to collectively worship with us and exalt your name. As we come to this time of the service and the preaching of your word, I pray that you will anoint this vessel, Lord, this instrument that we might speak today as your instrument and mouthpiece for the glory of the kingdom and for the edification of the body of Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll help me to be transparent before you and this congregation. Lord, help us and anoint us to receive your word, and we'll give you the thanks and the praise for it. In the name of Jesus, and everyone said amen. Look at someone close by and tell them, I want to see a great harvest, and you can be seated.
the very term compassion can be equated to and equal to Christ-likeness. Truest compassion is only found in the nature of God because only God knows the full depth of an individual's pain, of an individual's need, of an individual's suffering. You see, Jesus is seen in the essence of his feeling human weaknesses, as the apostle to the Hebrews recorded in Hebrews 4 and 15 Fully sensing the ravaged condition of human brokenness. Jesus understood all of that. Christ's likeness calls us to learn Jesus' heart of compassion. A depth of sensitivity that can be worked in us only through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Reconditioning our hearts to be able to sense the pain of human bondage and to weep with those who weep. Amen. You see, Jesus' tears over the city of Jerusalem. Remember that narrative where Jesus wept over Jerusalem? And his tears, as you recall, he shed at the tomb of Lazarus, reveal more than either a sense of rejection by the people of the city or the grief over the death of a personal friend. It was his compassion that brought tears for the hardness of all of the hearts that were blinded by their sin for the tragedy of all mankind's vulnerability to death. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He wasn't crying because Lazarus had died because he knew what he was going to do. But because of the hardness of their heart and the relentless uh, uh, denial of the Jesus Christ's ability and, his, and knowing what he could do. You see, love sees beyond the immediate and the personal and compassionately relates to the lost. It relates to the hurting. It relates to the needy. It relates to the distressed. Amen? It moves more and more into the dimension of di discipleship that discovers the compassion of Jesus Christ flowing through a person to care for and to serve others. Can you say amen? You see, I am quite certain this morning that if I were to poll this congregation with the question, well, how do you share your faith? And I will allow you the opportunity to voice that. I, I would no doubt hear several different approaches on how to effectively witness to others. You see, it seems there are as many methods as there are Christians. But I will tell you this, not all methods hit the target. In fact, some methods are about as effective as shooting ourselves in the foot. And that's not very effective. Now here's just a few approaches that uh, perhaps will spike your interest as we, as we move forward. First on my list of approaches is what we would call the eager beaver approach. Now no doubt we have all encountered an eager beaver. You know, Christians who use this method, they blurt out the gospel insensitively to anybody and everybody regardless of the situation. They care less about the person than about coercing him or, in, him or her into saying the right words. Now, you know, aggressively decisive focused type individual, people who use this approach merely want to add another notch to their Bible, if you will, or another name in the list of those who they've influenced in the back of the book. And oftentimes this approach is too pushy. Not always, but sometimes it's too pushy. Then there's the Ivy League approach. Uh, this one is this one I, I like. I kind of 
kind of laugh when I, and to myself when I talk about this one, which is just the opposite from the aforementioned one, the eager beaver type, which this type, the Ivy League approach, confines itself to reason and intellect. Now, this philosophical witness may say, let's discuss world religions, really never getting to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Although open and respectful, this method rarely mentions sin, nor the need for God's forgiveness. It's just too vague. There's what they call, uh, theologians call, the guilt approach, which flogs people with shame until they crawl to God for mercy. Amen. Spewing fire and brimstone. Every man would just, poor boy. Approach and tell you you're going to split hell wide open if you don't know, you know. Now, this method plays on people's fears and depicts us as an uncaring, angry judge, and it's too, manip too manipulative. Now, finally, there's what we call the mute approach, or what many call the mute approach. It's not what I named and tagged them, but it's what uh, uh, religious leaders and, and, and theologians approach. It's the mute approach, which involves being a silent witness for God. And people who use this method could be called mime Christians. You know, no words, please, just look at my life. Well, obviously, everyone observes our life, which is the right thing to do and which should be done. But, you know, they no doubt may live the gospel, but they don't explain it. And this method is somewhat too lopsided, if you will. So the question remains, what's the best approach in the method to use as we relate the gospel of Jesus Christ to others? And we can no doubt make a case for any number of them. But, you know, lifestyle, open air, crusade evangelism, whatever you have. But we don't have to limit ourselves to only one approach or one tack or one idea or one way of evangelizing our community. We can share Jesus Christ on a street corner. We can share Jesus Christ in our living room. We can share Him in a large arena or at someone's front door, if you will. It doesn't matter. Wherever the heart is ready and Jesus has opened the door, that is where we can share the gospel. Amen? However, whatever our method, we must include certain essentials that God will use to open the door of people's hearts. We must allow the Holy Spirit to open the heart of the individual to whom we are going to share the gospel with. Now, to uncover these essentials, we only need to take a few minutes and look at a few scenes from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to understand the effectiveness of compassion. So let's join Jesus at a particularly busy time in his three-year ministry. And it's important to note that Jesus' notoriety as a teacher and a healer quickly spread to all of the villages around the world of that day. And now he can't go anywhere without stirring up a dust cloud of excitement. You know, folks coming to him from all corners of the world of that day, bringing the sick and those who were diseased and so forth to him. Now, although anchoring himself to his mission, Jesus refuses to get carried along the winds of fame. He does not get caught up in that atmosphere and in that mode and in that mindset of the fame that surrounded him. And Jesus heals a paralytic, we find, in Matthew chapter 9, but not before teaching a very vital lesson about his authority and his power to forgive sins. Now, in verses 9 through 17 of the same chapter, Jesus shows grace to tax collectors and sinners, 
mauling for us his new wine ministry that burst the old wine skins of tradition, if you will. Amen? Then in verses 18 through 26, he highlights the power of faith as he heals the woman that had been afflicted with a 12-year chronic bleeding problem and resurrects a synagogue official's daughter. No wonder the fame of him was growing like wildfire and folks would come from all corners. And as one might suspect, the people's reaction to Jesus run the, run the gamut of emotions. Some people liked him. Some people thought he was great, like the two blind men he encounters next. Oh, they overflow with faith that can't be silenced. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 31, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Oh, they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, Now, listen, boys, don't be telling this around town. Keep it to yourselves. Don't need to be sharing this with everybody around. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all of that country. These were some fellows that were so excited about the ability to see that they was not going to keep their mouth shut. But everyone was not as enamored with Jesus as these blind men were. Everybody was not quite as excited and thrilled about what was going on around the ministry of Jesus. It may have been as Brother David mentioned this morning, the religious folks of that day were getting a little bit concerned about the fact he was going to be drawing some of their followers away from them by his ability and power to heal. So the Bible says as they went out in verse 32, Behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, Oh, it was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees, they had another approach and another idea. He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. As you might suspect from the religious folks. Yep, we believe what he done, but he done it by the power of the devil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not going to give glory to God. We're not going to acknowledge him as the risen Christ or the, or the Christ of the world who is going to suffer and die and rise again. But we're going to acknowledge it as the fact that, yeah, it happened, but he done it by the power of the devil. You see, here's the thing about Jesus' ministry. He either enraptured people or he enraged them. There was really no middle ground where his ministry was concerned. He either made folks extremely happy or they made, he made them want to take up stones and throw at him. That kind of makes me feel better about preaching, you know. He, they either were thrilled with him or they, they wanted to take care of some business. You see, he either sparked reverential awe or he inflamed blasphemous anger. No one could stand in his presence and walk away unmoved. You could not stand in the presence of Jesus without being affected. Amen? One way or the other. Now, it is evident from these passages as to how people responded to Jesus. But have you ever considered the thought of how Jesus responded to the people? What was he thinking as he scanned the sea of faces that were all around him that day? The next few verses gives us an enlightening look through, the, through his eyes, a look that 
we can use to guide our own approach to evangelism or to evangelizing the people that are around us and a lost community. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, man, we've got churches everywhere in this town. Everywhere you look, they're sprouting up all over the place. This almost down at the Pinecrest Road has become Church Alley down through here. But let me tell you, with all of the churches that are here within our surrounding, now world, this will us give it a 10-mile radius, we've not even begun to scratch the surface of the population that's around us. Everybody go like this. Amen. Now, for the moment, Jesus has sidestepped the fight with the Pharisees to get on with the more important work of the ministry to the people. The Bible says in verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. From morning to night, in city after city, and from village after village, Jesus bandages the wounds of a despairing nation. Amen. He cleanses lepers. He lifts fevers. He feeds empty stomachs and he nourishes the souls. My goodness, what a, what a magnificent time. What an awesome time it must have been. And still, they keep coming at to keep coming to him. A mother weeping over her sick baby. A father carrying his lame son. Bearing burdens on their backs and fears in their hearts. They come to Jesus as refugees of a fallen world looking for hope and an answer to their dilemma. And at some point, Jesus steps back and he surveys the crowd of, of, of this lost humanity. He looks over all the broken lives that are out there in front of him. And just at that point in Matthew's writing, he snaps a picture of Jesus and later records us for, for us here in verse 36 we'll get to in just a moment. Here we see not the face of a man overwhelmed by the task ahead, but the face of God moved to tears by the depth of human suffering. Friend, if there was ever a day we need to be moved to tears by the depth of human suffering in our society, it's the day that we live today. Amen. While we live in a very modern age, an age where uh, technology has just advanced beyond our comprehension in many areas, yet the suffering and the depravity of humanity has only increased as technology has increased. Amen. And here's the nature of Jesus' compassion. Verse 36 describes it well. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now please understand this. The compassion of Jesus is the undergirding to any evangelistic bridge that we might hope to build. Amen? The compassion of Jesus is the undergirding to any evangelistic bridge that we might hope to build. You see, without it, our efforts to reach the lost will simply crumble and fall. So let's take a moment to understand the concept of compassion as Jesus, as Matthew described here in this passage. The Greek word for compassion is a verb with the original root that meant the inward parts and which the ancients regarded as the sight of human feelings, the inner man, if you will, the heart that you hear talked about so much. 
The word later took on a more figurative meaning, defining the powerful natural passions that churn within us, such as anger and love and desire. And it is that Jewish and early Christian writers chose it as the perfect word to mean not passion, but compassion. There's a difference between passion and compassion. The verb form plays a very special role in the New Testament. You see, it appears nowhere but in the Gospels and is used only of Jesus or by Jesus in his parables, such as the Good Samaritan. What's he do? He feels compassion for the victim that he found along the road. Amen? Or the father for his prodigal son. When the prodigal son came home, he had compassion on him. You see, compassion combines the Christian ideals of love and mercy. Amen? So when saying that, Jesus felt compassion for the people. Matthew went more than he... He didn't just... Feel, it wasn't a matter of him feeling sorry for them. But he had compassion on them. Amen. He meant that Jesus' heart ached for them. It was something that gripped him inside. It was something that got a hold of him and just would not turn him loose. There was an ache in him as, you know, as a father might ache his heart might ache for his suffering children and compel him to sacrifice everything to save them. You know what it's like to have seen one of your children in trouble and your heart just... I mean, you just can't describe the agony that's going on inside of you. In an effort to try to find some means to help. Compassion is an action. Compassion is an action that is full of purpose and energy. It's the fuel that burned within Jesus, driving his entire life and mission. It was the compassion that he had for lost humanity. It's the compassion that he's had for you and I that has brought us to where we are today. For when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's that compassion he had for the humanity is the reason why we know and experience the relationship that we have for him today. Now, the reason Jesus was moved so deeply, we find in the context of the words of Matthew, which are recorded, which says this in verse, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Friend, I tell you what, as I talk to folks around the community and I interact with, with different ones from day to day, I am observing more and more a weary population. A population that's scattered by fear and uncertainty and not knowing what tomorrow may hold and everything that they once held dear and secure. Sad, they, things that once kept them going down a straight road is now just seeming to vanish away. And, and I'm seeing a very weary people, a scattered people, like sheep having no shepherd. Asking questions of me, what, what's going on? What, what, what can we expect? What's happening in our world? Like a scattered flock, the people were wandering into all sorts of dangers. Deep pits, treacherous canyons, the jaws of vicious wolves, as is so recorded by shepherds. The Greek word for weary is, is somewhat of a vivid word. As, as one commentator writes it, originally it meant flayed or mangled, is what the word weary originally meant, but it became equivalent to harassed or vexed with weariness or worry. Does that sound close to home? Weariness and worry. 
I don't run across too many folks today that are not a little bit concerned and worried about what's taking place in the world. Amen? Tormented and bewildered, they were victims of a world system and a religious system that was tearing their souls apart. They had no one to lead them to safety. One thing I will tell you on the observations that I have noted ever so frequently in my recent conversations with so many people about the, the condition of the world and what is taking place. And as we approach end time, I'm often asked the question, is this the end? Is this the apocalypse? Are we approaching uh, the, what the Bible is talking about? And one thing that, that I note that is so prevalent and, and stands out so much, folks are looking for the real thing. They're looking for something that will change them, something that will reach deep into the recesses. They're not looking for religion. They're not looking for a particular movement. They're not looking for a particular place or particular name over the marquee, but they're looking for a Jesus Christ, uh, people that are talking about Jesus that will change them. Amen. They had a lot of religion in Jesus' day, but it just wasn't getting the job done. For the standards of society of their day, they were downcast as well. In fact, Alfred Plummer, a theologian, a commentator, describes them as exhausted in the vain search for pasture. Oh, we're living in a world where folks are looking for peace. They're hungering for that joy and that peace that passes all understanding in the midst of all of the chaos. You see, that describes so many people in our society today. They've searched everywhere for the green pastures of happiness. In education, they have searched. In career, in pleasure, and in possessions, people have spent a lifetime searching for something that will satisfy their soul, and yet it has not happened. Amen. They may even have looked for it in the bottle of alcohol or in a syringe full of drugs. However, for all of their searching, they did not find any cool springs of soft metals. They only found brambles and dust, and now matters have even grown worse. And now there's a weariness in their eyes that reaches down to the very soul of their feet, to the very soul of their being, to their very innermost parts. And that's what Jesus saw in the people around him, and it literally broke his heart. Amen. Now with the stage set and the picture etched in your mind, Jesus does something here. And he tells his disciples something that just may astound you. If you think this morning that I'm about to ask you to go out and knock on doors and parade through the community and spend your valuable time doing all of those things that we normally accustomly associate with evangelism and witnessing, no. Jesus could not stand by and do nothing. We cannot afford to stand by and do nothing. However, what he does do may surprise you. Here's what Jesus told his disciples. He's, understand, he's moved with compassion. He sees the weariness of these folks as scattered like sheep having no shepherd. His heart is broken. What do we do? 
Jesus says to his disciples in verses 37 through 38, the harvest truly is plentiful. How many will agree with me today that the harvest in our world is plentiful? But the labors are few. Now, how many will agree with me now that the labors are few? Amen? But look what Jesus tells the disciples to do. He doesn't tell them, boys, it's time for you to get busy. You've been slacking off. You've not been getting the job done. You've been this, that, one thing, another. You've not been banging on enough doors. He said, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Amen? The spiritual fruit, in other words, is falling off the vine. People are ripe for the gospel. So what does Jesus say? Fellas, you need to pray. What? Yeah, you need to pray. They were expecting him to tell him. I mean, they were expecting him to tell him, no, it's time to mount our camels and let's hit the roads. We've got a lot of work to do. Their mouths flop open, their eyes get big, and he says, you need to pray. But pray, you'd expect Jesus to say, fellas, it's time we get busy. But he doesn't. You see, he knows the size of the task and the strength of the enemy. Amen? I, I tell you, one thing that has ever become prevalent to me, and that's the size of the task and the strength of the enemy. It sometimes takes me back. And I, I know what it, you know, to get the job done, Jesus Christ must send out his people filled with his power and bearing his authority. Amen? Well, I know later on he does send the disciples out, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But for the time being, he said, what you need to do is pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. This is what I'm talking about. Everybody can be involved in evangelism. Amen. Imagine what just might happen here at High Point Church. If the congregation that we have here right now, regardless of your age, I know some of you are, 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 are up in years and you, you just can't get out and do what you used to do and can't get out there and beat the bushes as they call it or so forth. I understand all that. And so does Jesus. Amen. He understands all that. But, oh, friend, some of y'all have been prayer warriors for a long, some of you as long as I am. No, I won't say that. <clears throat> Some of you have been prayer warriors for a long, long time, and you know how to get a hold of the throne of grace. Jesus said, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into the harvest. All I need is a few folks around here that will get serious and down to business about praying, Lord, we need some labors for the harvest. And you'll be surprised what he will do, who he will bring our way, who he will send to get out there and beat the bushes and get out there and tell the world about him. Amen. He'll send us folks that are filled with his power, bearing his authority. And you know that's just what he does with his disciples. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, the Bible says that when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. Everybody say, He gave them power. He gave them power over all unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Amen. 
Verse number, verses 5 and 6 say, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go into all those others that are going to come later. Right now he focused on Israel. It's important to note by the names of those who he sent out that God just used some ordinary folks. If I may be so bold, just ordinary men, some fishermen, some ruthless tax collectors. He just used folks who were willing to say yes and willing to follow him and willing to receive his power to express to those of that day the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of the twelve had seminary degrees or ministry experience. They were all newcomers. Amen. They were, if I may be so bold, your garden variety folks who were willing to become instruments in the Master's hand. Oh, if we will just become willing instruments in the Master's hand, it will astonish you what He can accomplish. Amen. And we have the tendency to look around at the size of our congregation and kind of the age categories that are here and and we kind of get that mind thing going on, mind messing with us, saying, you know, man, the task is so great. We're really, we're kind of a hopeless situation. No, no, you don't understand. What Jesus can do through you is absolutely mind-boggling. Amen. You see, now that we've heard all of this, it's time for us to put ourselves into this scene. Oftentimes, we make evangelism more complicated than necessary. We get these scary images in our mind of, oh boy. We can worry so much about getting the technique right that we lose the heart of Jesus Christ. It's not about technique. It's not about the ability to expound or be eloquent with words. You don't, it doesn't, that's none of that is necessary. All you need is a heart of compassion that will share with someone who comes to you hurting what Jesus Christ has done for you. How He has given you a peace that passes all understanding. You don't have to be able to scientifically explain all the changes that has transpired in your life. But oh friend, all you need to do is tell them, once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was where you are, but now I have joy and peace and happiness and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and my relationship with Him. That's all they want to hear. They don't want to hear a long diatribe of theology. They want to hear, what can your Jesus do for me? How can He help my situation? As I thought through the example that Jesus left for us, I want to consider four essentials that i kind of seen in that that will make our efforts to evangelize more natural. I'm about done, so stay with me a few more minutes. If you forget anything, everything else I have said today, do not forget this. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send forth labors into His harvest. If you can do nothing else, you can do that. First of all, we must see clearly. Though needs press in, press in all around Jesus. Man, they were coming from everywhere. 
every direction. Jesus took the time to really see the people he ministered to. He didn't just brush them off in a hurried fashion, but he looked into their eyes. He saw who they were and what they were. They weren't numbers or duties to accomplish to Jesus. They were individuals with hearts and souls, eternal souls, if you will. You see, we too must see as Jesus saw if we're to be effective for Him. We must look beyond the superficial things and, 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 and look into the eyes of that hurting individual and be able to have compassion on what they're going through. But oftentimes the mindset and the approach has been, you know, well, they got themselves in this mess. I, I, I'm not even going to go that road. I'll, I'll, I'll be like Jesus. If we some of you say angry. We must see as Jesus saw if we're to be effective for Him. We must break out of our preoccupied. I mean, you know, sometimes we get so preoccupied. You ever, you ever notice that? We get so much going on in our busy hectic world and we've got this schedule to meet and this to do and that to get to and this to go to and this is going on and that's going on and we, we find ourselves just pulled in every direction and, and we become so preoccupied that and look beyond our daily concerns and then we're going to discover the people around us and notice their gifts and their needs maybe for the first time. Maybe for the first time you're looking at that individual that you have worked beside for so long and you will see in them a hunger and a longing. Oh, that I might know what you know. The second thing is we must feel deeply. Before he said anything to his disciples, Jesus first felt the depth of the people's pain. You know, we must also be willing to stand with others in their hurt and their confusion. It's not an easy thing to do. Oftentimes we need to try putting ourselves in other people's shoes. What would it be like to think you couldn't make it through the day without a drink? Imagine that. I, I, I can't, you know, to me, I, I can't wrap my mind around that from the standpoint of, 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 of logic. But, but imagine this, folks, that they're not going to make it through the day if they can't get to something that will help them. What would it feel like for your spouse to leave you after 15 years of marriage? I, I can't. My wife and I have been married so long, the kids won't even take me back. They told her that my warranty has expired. Don't even try to send me back to them. I said, well, isn't that a fine how do you do? After dad's taking such good care of you. Try to emphasize, em, em, empathize and connect with, with that individual to care about what others are going through. It's irrelevant why, how they may have ended up where they have ended up, but the fact of the matter is, if they're searching, we have the answer. Third thing is we must pray specifically. We must pray specifically. When we pray, we must pray. You see, Jesus wanted His disciples to pray for sensitivity. He asked them to pray for capable workers for the harvest. Amen? And part of being that kind of worker means taking care of others through prayer. How many still believe prayer changes things? Ooh. You see, listen to this now. Prayer is the most, impo is the most important aspect of evangelism.
Say that with me. Prayer is the most important aspect of evangelism. Yet, oftentimes, it's the most and easiest overlooked. Amen. Oftentimes, it's the, mo it's, it's the most and easiest overlooked. I, I, I'm almost positive every one of us in here know at least three people we could uphold in prayer. Lord, they're lost. They, they need you. Maybe somebody you met at work. It may be somebody lives down the street from you. It may be who knows. Maybe somebody you met just in passing last week. And finally, as the musicians make their way, I close with this. The fourth and final <clears throat> observation that I pull from these passages. We must go willingly. We must go willingly. You notice, <clears throat> you haven't noticed yet, take the time this week to reread these passages in Matthew chapter 9. You'll notice that when Jesus did send his disciples, he called them together, he gave them power to go out in his name, on his behalf to minister to a nation that was in trouble. Matthew does not record a single sign of reluctance among the disciples when Jesus sent them out. I, not a one of them said, you know, look, I, I'd love to go, but I'm so busy. I, you know, I've got this conference tomorrow and this meeting next week, and i got this, that going on, and, and, and I really, you know, I don't, could, could you send somebody else? I mean, this guy over here, he could probably go in my place. Not a one of them. Not a one. You know, Dad was really expecting me to come back to the boat this week and, and take it out and, 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 and bring in a catch because, you know, we've we got to pay the bills. And... Peter didn't even get in trouble in this one, which he so often did. They never come up with any excuses. They just... Say, okay, Lord. You see, this is where we put our faith to work. Where we move from feeling sorry for people to feeling Christ's compassion for them. I'm not asking you to feel sorry for anyone. But I'm asking you to feel the compassion that Jesus had for lost humanity. You see... God may send us as His workers, but He will not go for us. We are His body. We are His mouthpiece. We are His vessels. He will not go in our stead. We must go. He may open the door, but it's only you and I that can walk through it. The decision is ours. I ask you today, are you willing to go? Are you willing to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth labors into his harvest? Later on, the disciples came back to Jesus. They were just absolutely ecstatic. They said, Lord, man, you just can't believe it. Man, we prayed here and they were healed and this happened, that happened. The demons... 
The demons had to yield us. Jesus said to them, in this, don't, don't, don't rejoice in that. But he said, rejoice in the fact that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's how compassionate and important evangelism was to Jesus. Not the power that we carry with us, but that names are being written in the Lamb's book of life. He said, that's where you need to rejoice. Would you stand? Without compassion, there will be no harvest. So today I ask you, High Point Church, as we are standing together right now, to join with me and pray like you have never prayed before for labors for the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. The fields are ripe all around us today lives hang in the balance so it's up to you and I let's worship for a moment as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts Jesus.